It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, November 17th, talking about the summit between Chinese President Xi and Joe Biden in San Francisco and the APEC meeting. And we will also touch on the Middle East. And David Cameron, former prime minister of the United Kingdom, is back, back in government. Let us begin with the meeting in San Francisco. If this were classic broadcast radio, Sam Park, we would be cutting to Scott McKenzie in the background, right? Because that would get all the boomers uh, antenna up, right? I'm sorry. I don't know who Scott McKenzie is. If you're going to San Francisco. Oh, oh, okay. That's complicated. Okay. (laughs) Neither Biden nor she wore flowers in their hair to the best of what I could tell from the movie. It wasn't on camera if they did anyway. Although we might say that Xi Jinping was very chilled out and peaceful. He kind of had not his hippie hat, but certainly the tone of his visit was much more friendly, less confrontational, even a kind of a classic Biden gaffe they didn't pounce on. That's uh, right. The Chinese media didn't pounce on Biden, kind of being badgered into calling she a dictator by uh, good enterprising reporters in a, a bit of a free-for-all exchange. I would say that was a bad reporter, actually. That, you know, that was highly irresponsible, I thought. Uh, Not if you're trying to get a good quote, Sam. Okay, but what, you know, I mean, you're <laughs> I'm, screwing I'm, around I, with... I understand what you mean. With, you know, sensitive diplomatic matters just so you can get a good quote. I'm sorry. You know, that's not your job. So, yeah, Biden kind of calls him a dictator and she lets it go. Well, not just that. First of all, just to back up a little bit, you're absolutely right. The body language was very almost serene. Uh, I mean, they you, you, you got the good clip of the two of them walking through the garden of Filoli Mansion uh by themselves, you know, without any underlings within anywhere near either of them, just to, the, the two of them walking along, having a nice chat. Uh, and uh, John, as you and our regular listeners will remember, uh, every time there's high level diplomatic contact between the United States and China, I always like to consult globaltimes.cn. That is the website of the Global Times, which is the main English language outlet of the Communist Party. It's a propaganda outlet, but it's outward facing, right? That is, it's in English. So it's for uh, the the foreign audience. It's not for the, the, the for the domestic Chinese audience. Right. It's the but, Chinese Communist Party, I just want to point out. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And the coverage on Global Times was very positive, right? They They hailed this as a very productive meeting. Uh, and for instance, today they're talking about that, that you know, Xi is still there and he met with uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, 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 Kushida. And so uh, not only that, though, uh, sort of savvy international reporters who you know speak Mandarin and the like, uh, they were checking Chinese social media and it was impossible to find the word dictator anywhere on Chinese social media in the aftermath of Biden using that word. So it's not just for the foreign audience that this is being presented as a positive meeting, but even inside of China, they're not talking about Biden having said that Xi is a dictator, right? And this doesn't just happen uh, automatically, right? That, you know, that they have to scrub that from the media. Uh, and it seems as though they did. 
So I think that's very much a good sign. Uh, and uh, it speaks to the sort of at least beginnings of what uh, would might seem to be a thaw in American and Chinese relations. I would say it's a good sign, yes, and that it is apparently leading to a warming of relations between the two superpowers. But it's a bad sign just from the journalistic perspective and that you can so clearly give a country of over a billion people marching orders on the messaging of a news event and everybody either falls in line or receives the uh, the memory hold news product, right? I mean, it, it's slightly terrifying when you think about it like that. Well, sure, and that's why I always say that that uh, we kind of make a mistake when, and not just us, but you know, the the media in general, when we cover China, just like it's you know Germany or you know uh, just a, a Western country, and and that's actually kind of the point of what Biden said when asked about Xi being a dictator. He said, "Look, they have a different system," uh, and that's absolutely right, and something that we would all do well to bear in mind. So, what did really get accomplished? Reestablishment, according to the president of the United States, reestablishment of direct military communication, a hotline of sorts. That's right. This had gone away, which, again, is terrifying to think about. Uh, And it was most highlighted during um, a silly little episode that torpedoed the last uh, United States uh, Chinese uh, get together with Balloon Gate. Right. Wasn't that the incident, if I'm not mistaken where the united states tried to get on the phone with the chinese military leadership to just to make sure this is some silly balloon and they got like the the overnight voicemail yeah hi you've reached the people's liberation army i can't come to the phone right now i mean yeah, yeah well they they didn't get back to them for a day from what i from what i gather which i'm not you know an arms uh, I'm not a nuclear arms expert, but I do believe a day is long enough to have uh, a mistaken nuclear exchange that wipes Easily, out humanity. Yes, but, but by by a long shot, right? So that's important, right? Reestablishment of uh, consistent and immediate communication between the two militaries, and then uh, an agreement that will hopefully crack down on the importation of fentanyl from China. To the United States or ingredients. Okay, yeah, it's not direct importation of fentanyl, uh, yeah, right? Right. It's the, the precursor shipped mainly to Mexico or other uh, uh, Latin American drug producing right. but companies. The, the ingredients come made from China. Into fentanyl. Right. Right. Yeah. So the ingredients that come from China that get cooked up and come to the United States as fentanyl. What there's a restriction or some there's an agreement to reduce the flow of that yes. that eventually harm American consumers. That's right. Those are the two kind of big headlines, right? Because this was, uh, as reported by every news outlet I touched or could consume, a low bar expectation meeting. The fact that it was happening was actually the biggest news. Yes, I think that's right. And uh, uh, not just the military to military contact, though, but it seems as though uh, there there will be an establishment of lines of direct contact between the two presidents themselves. At now, one point, she said, "Just pick up the phone, right?" Yes. Now that he didn't really mean that, right? I mean, these things are, you know, highly orchestrated ahead of time and stuff like this. But this is uh, would seem to be relatively new, right? Uh, the, this is not something that's been the habit of uh, Chinese American diplomacy over the years. So, if that actually happens, it would be terrific. Uh, and as you say. Uh, it is a low bar, and 
you know, just the idea that this meeting would happen uh, is uh, progress in itself, right? Or at least is being construed that way. Uh, one thing I would say also is that, for instance, uh, in not just in America, but it, definitely here, uh, one thing about the State Department as an institution, and this is sort of media folklore, right, is that the State Department leaks, right? I mean, uh, the, 100%. All the time, right? Uh, I think think the, about us on this silly little podcast. It's all international relations gossip. Imagine if you have a giant bureaucracy full of experts, right? Yes, exactly. They must gossip constantly. That's right. And, the, and you know, since it's a very large institution, there's, you know, factions and rivalries and things like totally. this. Totally. You know, they all want to try and get the jump on one another, you know, things of that nature. I don't mean to to uh, disparage them by saying this, right? It's just that that's the way large institutions work, especially public-facing institutions. Uh, and so the gossip, you know, from unnamed sources, you know, close to right. the matter, blah, 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 right, was that, uh, you know, they'd been trying to line up this meeting for months, right, to see if if – if G would actually come, you know, if he would meet face to face with Biden and stuff like this. But it seemed to get a lot easier to line it up after the Hamas atrocity attacks of October 7th. Uh, at that point, unnamed sources say the Chinese suddenly seemed to become considerably more open to the idea of having the face to face meeting. I would guess, honestly, that it probably would have happened anyway, but we'll never know, right? The fact is, the attacks occurred on October 7th, and now we have the meeting. Uh, and that's good. It is absolutely 100% net good for humanity that the two biggest powers, the two superpowers, are speaking more. There's no question about that. Let's zoom out a little bit, because... We've been covering China on this podcast since we began. Why? Why does China suddenly want to, and especially she, why does he want to launch this charm offensive? I read in the New York Times, and I think that's not inaccurate to describe his visit, right? A bit of a charm offensive. He's meeting with United States business leaders. He's showing Joe Biden his presidential limousine, right? They're comparing yeah. presidential limousines. You know, they're, they're old buddies. Why? Okay, well, one, the Hamas attacks. The world just got a lot more dangerous. Yes. And I think one thing you can count on the Chinese government to always do is act in a rational manner, right? You already had... Up to a point, yes. Certainly more than Russia. Sure. Right? So the world just got a lot more dangerous, because yes. of this destabilization in the Middle East on yes. top of Ukraine and Russia, on top of existing ambient tension about Taiwan. So uh, I think that the key word that you just said there, John, is destabilization, right? right? Uh, the level of instability in the world is still very, very high in the wake of you know, the COVID pandemic, mainly, I would say, right? And we should uh, point out higher than it's ever been since the Chinese economic miracle. That's right. And Their miracle it, requires, or thus far has required, stability. That's right. And I think every uh, country is feeling this on, in some measure 
or another in different ways, depending on their particular situation. Uh, but at a certain point, I think, for instance, China is very much trying to position themselves as a, a, a in a global leadership role, right? Very explicitly. Uh, and uh, if they want to do that, they need to be seen to be trying to address large-scale sources of global instability, which are touching their own domestic economy, by the way, as we've discussed, right? Things are not going especially well economically for China right now, and it's partly because of the level of instability in the world today. So it behooves them, as it does the United States, to attempt to at least be seen to be attempting to address these sources of instability on one level or another. Now, of course, they didn't talk a lot about the Middle East content, conflict directly, or at least that's I believe not... Brought, Biden brought it up and kind of got nowhere, if I'm that's right. correct. Uh, yeah. be, and I think, you know, China, to be fair, doesn't have an extremely direct role in the conflict, right? Uh, anywhere near as much as the United States does. Uh, and so... Uh, just because Biden didn't get get anywhere talking about this, I can't really blame China too much for that, honestly. Uh, but for instance, they uh, uh, Xi was said to have mentioned to Biden that uh, the most the, the most serious and dangerous issue facing the two countries was Taiwan, uh, and I think that's probably right, actually, right in terms of the bilateral U.S. Chinese relations. I think that's probably a fair assessment. That's 100 percent true. Yeah. And so that's something that and they not much progress was made in that particular area either, by the way. Nobody's really. Uh, but well, apart from the military's reestablishing communication. That's right. But that, you know, that's you know, that could be about anything technically. Right. I sure. Mean, but you're uh, less like ideally you're less likely to have a, mis- a mistake. Yes. They did seem to want to say, look, we're not going to take uh, dramatic unexpected actions right they did want to seem to try to at least tamp down the rhetoric about taiwan a little bit uh but so again the 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 macro global situation uh is so unstable that just this the two superpowers reestablishing better communications it has to be seen as as a positive good i just want to point out as much as we talk about Ukraine, Russia, or Hamas, Israel, and the United States um, auxiliary support roles in those conflicts. The United States will go to war with China if China tries to invade Taiwan. I mean, that's that's, yeah, that's, that's literally on paper. Yeah. So that is by far the most dangerous thing, I think. And so, yes, just to clarify that point. Um, the other thing is China is in a bad way economically. And United States investment, foreign investment has been going in the wrong direction. So I thought she kind of had his hand forced going into this meeting even before Hamas. But I also think, and the France 24 debate you sent or you recommended was so uh, very illuminating on this. We might also just be far enough away from the shock of the pandemic and how that kind of reoriented everybody's priorities on um, the uh, hierarchy of needs kind of psychological element of every government and every constituency that that maybe we're just getting away from that terrifying chapter a little bit more 
and and maybe everybody's just a little bit more willing to engage. I mean, I don't want to bolt that onto U.S. Chinese relations, but there were just plenty of reasons for Xi Jinping to play ball. That's right. And uh, again, the level of instability in the world isn't good for anybody. Uh, and so uh, if if we can try and reduce it, right, it will be good for each leader can see that it will be good for his own country, right? L- regardless of, you know, how they relate to the other people, right? Uh, China would like to stabilize things for their own sake. Uh, and that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Things, and, and by the way, you know, uh, things do seem to be stabilizing in China a little bit. They've unveiled some stimulus programs. Uh, things have moderated somewhat. They're not out of the woods, but it doesn't seem like they're, you know, teetering on the edge of economic collapse for the moment, at least. I've still read various reports that uh, it, it's still challenging just from a security and operations perspective for foreign companies to set up operations in China just yes. because of the draconian security state. But again, she is shrewd and and it showed in this summit. Yes. Um, anything else? Were there any other kind of just nice gossipy moments from uh APEC and then the the Xi Biden summit, which was a separate entity to the meeting, as I understand it. Well, yeah, it took place. I mean, they were both going to. Well, I don't know if maybe, perhaps Xi wouldn't have gone uh, if he wasn't going to meet Biden, but it, uh, Biden was going to be there anyway, right? And there's and it, there's again, uh, Xi met with the Japanese Prime Minister also, uh, and in fact, Biden met with uh, Joko Widodo, the President of Indonesia, in Washington just before the summit when they were both on their way there uh and so that i think helped uh him having that meeting with jokowi uh kind of helped set the table for his meeting with g right is that he can meet with somebody with the president of an east asian nation uh you know prior to meeting with g right just to show that the united states is an influential player uh inside of uh uh the pacific rim or the the that is the uh, the western pacific uh and there were some uh defense and business uh agreements that were reached between the united states and indonesia before the apex summit so that's uh perhaps promising the other thing i would say is that uh she held a dinner uh on wednesday night with uh american business executives so it's something like forty thousand dollars a plate I'm not sure who gets the money, by the way. Right yeah, he's now. not running for Senate. Yeah, I mean, so, so I, you know, I, I, the, I, you know, all the executives paid forty thousand dollars apiece, but I, to whom to whom did they pay it? That's still unclear to me. If any of our listeners know, please do let us know. Uh, but uh, on the whole, you know, uh, as we say, uh, it's an improvement, a slight improvement in what in what had gotten to be a rather bad situation. To the Middle East. And every week, I try to think about what you and I are going to talk about. And then I am just struck by how uh, overcome with despair I am every time I even try to go into the statistics. So this week, I deliberately did not look at updated casualty figures. And I wanted to return to something we touched on last week, which is Iran and their influence in various and their uh, patronage, as you termed it a couple of episodes ago, of various groups in the Middle East, 
and how it fits into the larger puzzle of that region. Um, is there anything more specific and pressing? There's the issue of the hospital and, and Israel's uh, allegations that a, a hospital is actually a Hamas command center with tunnels underneath it and thus is a military target. But I feel like our conversation about this conflict thus far would indicate that's just something that will not be talked about in 10 days. Well, I mean, it may or may not be. But the fact is that uh, Israel is sticking with the rhetorical strategy of saying that Hamas are terrorists and terrorists use civilians as human shields. And that's true uh, in in both the general and particular senses. Uh, but they, as we've discussed previously, that shouldn't be the end of the conversation. But Israeli officials speaking in public seem to want it to be, right? It's They're using civilians as human shields. Therefore, we are allowed to do this. Uh, and some people would say, well, no, you're not, right? Uh, and that's, uh, you know, uh, there's arguments to be made on both sides of that, and people can come down on either side that they might want to. Uh, and so whether or not that's true, we're going to find out. I w- it wouldn't surprise me at all if it, in fact, were true. Uh, but I think a lot of people would say that still doesn't justify, uh, you know, just pulverizing Gaza in on the whole. Uh, and so I think that the way that Israel is handling this from a sort of public relations standpoint, if that doesn't come across as overly crass, isn't perhaps uh, the best way of doing this. But I don't know if there's any other way they could have done it just because of the way they've chosen to pursue the military strategy uh, after October 7th, which I think, you know, was probably pretty locked in early on. And maybe it's been moderated a little bit here and there. Uh, But uh, I don't think that uh, in the end, uh, there's going to be any resolution to that. It's still going to be human shields versus that's not enough of a good reason. Can we talk about Iran real quick? Sure. Uh, Well, what about them? I mean, they, they are the patron of Hamas to a degree, although that's, been in their in relations with Hamas have improved more recently. But they've there been was, strained periodically. Yes, especially like during the Arab Spring uh, when... Uh, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Or, a a government in power for several decades might not love an upstart younger organization with new political power. Not just that, but one of... Uh, uh, Iran is also the patron of the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad, who faced a popular uprising. Uh, and Iran took the side of Assad, of the Assad regime during uh, that civil war, which is still ongoing, by the way, uh, against uh, the mainly Sunni uh, uh, rebels that were trying to overthrow Assad. Uh, and Hamas was on their side. Uh, and so... Only since uh, the civil war, the tide of the civil war in Syria has turned in the favor of the Assad regime, have Iran and Hamas been able to patch up their differences. 
Uh, and as we know, Iran is also the main patron of Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they are uh, much more closely linked. They are both Shia. That is a much right. closer relationship, exactly. both geographically and philosophically. And historically. Right. And uh, so this has been a sort of source of tension. As t- And as time goes on after October 7th, it's becoming more and more clear that neither Iran nor Hezbollah knew ahead of time that Hamas was going to lodge these attacks. Uh, and they're not especially happy about it. And we've discussed this here and there. Right, because uh, as much as they want to annihilate Israel, as we've talked about earlier on this episode, instability in a given region is not good for existing power groups. Not just that, but if Iran were to attack Israel directly, right, that would involve the United States also. Right. So you can say death to Israel all the time uh, if you want to. But do you really want to go toe-to-toe in a full-on shooting war with the United States? Maybe you do, right? Uh, but that's something to think about, right? You did certainly not something you want to go into uh, willy-nilly, especially if it's the result of a bunch of hotheads in Hamas doing it without telling you ahead of time. Right. That's, I mean, Barbara Tuckman has a book about this, right? Like, you know. The guns of August, the start of World War One. Th- these things happen, and it's not good. Exactly, and but at least a bunch of the, hotheads assassinated somebody in in Sarajevo, and and uh, suddenly yeah. the whole yeah, all of all of Europe is at war, right? At least we now have the example of uh, World War One that people can look at and say, you know, that's how that that happened, yeah. and maybe we don't want to go down that road. And so uh, now. This could still escalate, uh, but it does seem, again, sort of a, uh, very much like the example of Xi and Biden, right? It does seem as though Iran and Hezbollah uh, are not especially inclined to escalate this situation. And again, uh, that's, you know, good news in uh, uh, in a sea of bad news. So, so I, don't, I don't mean to be reductive, but the the sports reporter brain on me i just want to get our roster established about iran so you've got iran and hezbollah tight right yes. shia historically geographically close north of israel hezbollah operates out of lebanon you have hamas and iran hamas sunni kind of rogue launched these october 7th attacks without iran's knowing it iran also a patron of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is also in Gaza, and that's a smaller rival militant group to Hamas, and they yes. don't have any political body. They're just terrorists, yes. right? And then you also have the Houthis in Yemen who are fighting a civil war or an insurgent group in Yemen, and this is where the Saudi Arabian peace comes in? Well, I mean... uh that's, because the Saudis back the government the Houthis are revolting against in Yemen. Yes, and and the Houthis and that's are a winning, Sunni Shia deal. That's, that's right. Sunni the, Shia the deal. Houthis are a, a Shia movement, right? Uh, and the former uh, government of Yemen was dominated by uh, uh, by Sunnis, and the Houthis. So, so have, the Houthis have won. They're not, I wouldn't say they've won. They they seem to be on the brink of victory. Uh, they've also been lobbing 
cruise missiles uh, or some sort of missiles towards Israel up the Red Sea ever since this conflict erupted in on October 7th. Uh, and that's a long way, by the way. If you look at a map, all right, those missiles have to travel quite some distance. And uh, uh, they've been shot down by different parties uh, over the, uh, the every time that they've uh, launched these missiles. They haven't hit their targets at all. I don't really understand why they're doing this, except as maybe just sort of a gesture, uh, because again, the missiles it's have an to expensive travel. gesture. Yeah, um, and missiles have to travel quite some distance. They're going to show up, right? You're almost certainly not going to to hit your targets with them, uh, and so it just sort of seems like a kind of harassment technique. I suppose it sort of fits into the same category as the exchanges of uh, artillery fire uh, along the uh, Israel's northern border with Lebanon. With right. Hezbollah are launching attacks here and there. And that's against... been going on long before October 7th. Yes, and, and they've seemed to have escalated somewhat. We hope that they don't escalate further. Uh, but they've it's not so far a full-out second northern front against Israel. And again, we can count that as a relief. All right, we're going to get to David Cameron returning to British politics in a moment, but just one last question or one last thought about this Iran roster of destabilizing groups or militant groups. Houthis, Palestinian, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and Hezbollah. Why is Iran doing this? How is this in their interest other than just theological purity and they are a theocracy right well it's also it, it's just a way to project power right without having to employ your own military uh and they have all uh, that oil do they need that at all well they're on the they're, they're under a lot of economic sanctions Embargo, sure uh yeah. and uh they want to think of themselves as an important regional power i think it also figures into the sort of uh back and forth between them and the Saudis, right? Who we, we know that they normalized relations with the Saudis earlier this year. And then both Iran and Saudi Arabia joined the BRICS grouping, right? Uh, after normalizing their own relations. Right. And so this, it seems they're working at cross purposes here with all these rogue groups. Yes, that's right. And so what I want to know is what's Saudi Arabia going to do, right? They not only normalized relations with Iran, but seemed to be on the verge of normalizing relations with Israel, right? Just to sort of boost their own geopolitical standing in the region. Uh, are they still going to do that? Are that as normalized relations with Israel? We'll see. Uh, you know, that's certainly on the back burner for now. But they're, uh, as we've discussed before, they don't seem to be saying much of anything about this. They, I suppose, might emerge later as uh, a player in any sort of peace settlement that might arise. But that's probably not in the near often. I guess we'll chalk it up to a net good that both Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are on opposite sides of the Sunni-Shia split, seem to prefer clout to war. That's right. And, And they both seem to not want to add to the instability, again, much like with Xi and Biden. Right. Everyone seems to want to tamp down the level of instability, which would be great. Uh, you know, we might wish that we're being tamped down considerably more than it is. To Great Britain, the United Kingdom and former Prime Minister David Cameron has been uh, recalled to the cabinet by current Prime Minister 
Rishi Sunak. Um, Cameron replaces James Cleverly, who has moved over to become the Home Secretary after uh, Suella Braverman was sacked after she criticized the Metropolitan Police. Why is it important that Cameron's back in action in British politics? Well, I honestly, I think it fits in very well with the theme that we've been discussing today of uh, instability and how do you uh, address it. For instance, and I think it's sort of ironic because nobody bears more responsibility for Brexit, right? The the leaving of the European Union by Great Britain Cameron? than David Cameron, right? He called for he called the referendum. He thought he could stop it. He was opposed to Brexit himself, but uh, it as we know it passed, and the and the UK did leave the European Union. Uh, but and so. He resigned in the immediate aftermath of the referendum passing, but he was the fir- the last prime minister before Brexit happened, and he served, in fact, for six years as prime minister. Uh, and so, in a way, he sort of recalls the much greater level of stability in the pre-Brexit era of Great Britain, uh, even though it is actually his fault. Right, but since since then, the UK the UK has had four prime ministers. Is that right? Yeah, it's been uh, chaos. Yeah, and so uh, uh, in a way, it sort of feels like Sunak is trying to uh, uh, sort of hint at a greater level of stability inside the United Kingdom uh, by bringing in someone like David Cameron in a time of uh, enhanced geopolitical instability abroad uh, and so someone with his supposedly august presence right uh, might be you know just what the doctor ordered in terms of addressing the global challenges facing the uk today say what you will about david cameron he's got more gravitas than the head of lettuce that lasted longer than liz trust you know compared to some of the people in in the conservative party today uh you know he's you know like Churchill or something. (laughs) All right. I think that's going to do it for this episode that I'm officially going to be calling the cool your jets, man episode where the entire world seems to want to chill out a little bit, which I guess is good. Doesn't everybody. Yeah. Uh, We invite you all to chill out this weekend. Uh, Questions, comments, suggestions, uh, any insight about that $40,000 a plate dinner that she had in San Francisco, send it to John Ramey media at gmail.com. All right, he's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Have a great weekend. And uh, yeah, everybody chill out. Thanks, folks.